Hey guys, um, we're here doing our Twilight Zone podcast, um, Two Librarians in Search of an Exit. It has a name. Yes. Awesome. Thank you, um, Amanda from Main Library Patron Services, who gave us the suggestion for the name. Hey, thank you so much, Amanda. Um, well, my name's Katherine O'Brien. I work at the Main Library in the Services Department on Level 4. And I'm Stuart. I'm the uh, Social Media Coordinator for the Central Arkansas Library System. Awesome. So today um, we're talking about the episode Time Enough at Last. It's uh, season one, episode eight, actually, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. It is about a guy named Henry Bemis. He's a banker who really loves to read. Um, he just wants time to read. Um, a lot of people in his life really don't want him to read um, and are really annoyed with him reading, um, particularly his boss and his wife. We meet them and they're both very frustrated with his uh, reading habit. Um, eventually, as the episode goes on, he likes to read in the vault at the bank. So he makes his way down to the vault one day and is reading and enjoying himself and having a great time and um, is reading a newspaper at one point and a bomb goes off. And um, yeah, do you want to take it from here, Stuart? Um we can surmise from the newspaper maybe that it's it's a hydrogen bomb that's right not just any bomb <laughs> it's a yeah. big old bomb that's true <laughs> um and it kind of you know destroys the bank and it destroys the town um you know just kind of looking at the painted background you can guess that it destroys a whole lot more than just the town yeah um i actually i uh preparing for this this discussion i read the short story that this episode was based on. Oh, wow. What was that? Um, it was called Time Enough at Last. I can't oh. remember the author's name, um, but it was uh, it was a pretty short story. Mm -hmm. And um, it, some liberties were taken with it to turn it into a teleplay. But um, it, it was a little more graphic about, you know, how uh, Henry Beeman sees the you know, bodies of people that he used to work with, you know, when he's trying to get out of the bank and, and such, but uh, stuff you couldn't show on, on television in the 1950s. Right. Um, but, you know, from there, he leaves the bank. Uh, you can, it is definitely the H-bomb and uh, just everything is, is, in, uh, is in a state of disarray. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's pretty crazy. I remember, it's interesting that you mentioned the book was a little more graphic or the story was mm -hmm. a little more graphic with the bodies and stuff like that. And it, it occurred to me that it must be, it would have been that because it came out in 1959, it actually first aired November 20th, I believe in 1959. And um, so I remember thinking like, if that came out now, it would be like, if they redid this idea, um, maybe not in like a twilight zone sense, because they may have, I can't remember if they did this, redid this episode in the, uh, what is it? Peel. Uh, did they redo this one? I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't seen all of his episodes, but I haven't, I don't think so. But I just was thinking, I remember thinking like, where are all the bodies at? And then I remember being like, oh yeah, that's because obviously they wouldn't have put that out there. Yeah. You see uh, in the episode, you see the bank president, his hand like, right. sticking out from, and, and uh, he's holding a, like a dictaphone mm -hmm. and, and you hear some speech that he was trying to, to dictate that, is meaningless. No longer has a purpose. I mean, it never really had a purpose to begin with because some just it was a banker talking about whatever. Right. But <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. I remember going back. I remember rewinding when I was watching the episode, trying to like see if what he said had some kind of like background meaning or if I should like right. or something. And I remember being like, mm, that doesn't mean anything. Like it's, it didn't really seem to have any meaning, even in like the grand scheme of the episode, it was sort of just like one sentence of, of um, dialogue or monologue, I guess. And it was just, mm-hmm. it was really meaningless. So, but I think it's meaninglessness, if that's a word, was the point that it was, you know, he didn't matter right. anymore. Uh, so he leaves the bank, everything's destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, finds uh, the ruins of a grocery store. Uh-huh. Yep. He's, he's got, you know, all the, the canned goods that you could possibly want, uh, you know, I don't know how long he's going to live with radiation and everything, but he feels like he's pretty well set for years. Uh, he finds a, a couch to take a nap on. And when he wakes up, he goes to the sporting goods store, finds a gun, thinks about killing himself. And then, hey, off in the distance, the public library. Who hasn't experienced that, you know? Right. Um, oh, go to the library. All these books. You know, everything else is destroyed, but the books are in perfect condition. I also loved how they landed in perfect sets together. <laughs> I thought that was great. I was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, they're just kind of, they're all over the place. And then later on, he, he does, yeah, he makes these like huge, you know, stacks. And he's like, oh yeah, this one's for January and this one's for February. He says different months, but you know, he's like, he's got it all right. planned out. You know, right. he's just going to read for the rest of his life. You know, he's, he's got time enough. Uh, to just sit and, and read. His wife can't tell him to cut it out. His, uh, his boss can't tell him, you know, I'm firing you because you read too much. Uh, he can just sit there and eat his green beans out of a can and, and read Charles Dickens. That's like the life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to spend the rest of my life reading, you know, Charles Dickens, but that's, you know, it's not even here or there. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't want to eat just green beans. No, Rainy uh, so green beans at that. And then right, and then he um he uh, drops his glasses, they break, and then oh you know he can't read anymore. So there, life has no meaning. And then that's that's the end of the episode. Yep. And uh, so the the whole the whole purpose of of um of these discussions that we're having, Catherine, is to to go back and look at classic Twilight Zone episodes that, that we choose. We're not just doing, you know, chronologically, you know, episode one, episode two. Right. Um, we're just kind of picking and choosing episodes that we can look at through uh, a very contemporary lens, like specifically what's happening in the world right now. Um, with a, you know, global com- pandemic, we've got um, uh, totalitarianism, authoritarianism, fascism on the rise globally. Um, those are, those are themes that Rod Serling was very concerned about, you know, threats to humanity, um, and how we react to them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think that this episode has just, um, many points that are relevant to us now, even though, uh, like you said, it originally aired in 1959. Yep. Yeah. Yep. November of 1959. And I also want to add that, um, along with like the crazy pandemic that's going on and the, and the crazy political uh, state of the world right now. I think also it's really important to think about the like Rod Serling's interest in, in um, his way of being so in tune with fear um, and people's 
reaction to things that they're fearful of. And specifically when you're talking about isolation, there are so many, one of the things that I noted about this episode in relation to the last episode we talked about, where is everybody, um, mm-hmm. was the, the, different emotions that both of our main characters went through, maybe not in the same order, but you know, both of our characters who were dealing with isolation went from like a serious, like a denial phase where they were like, "Eh, Mm. fine, everything's okay. You know, and then went through like a confusion um, and on it and then made their way on to panic. So I think that, you know, the creator of the show, Rod Serling was so good at knowing how people would react to like, certain situations and especially fear Mm. Um, that's that was so interesting to me to see that in both episodes like oh wait a minute this guy's reacting very similarly to how our other character reacted yeah and and whereas in wherever where is everybody uh his story kind of ended with the panic you know he he panicked and then they pulled him out of the box and it was just you know it was just a, a a simulated experience he was hallucinating and um and and he was going to be okay and then that was the end right um this guy there's no there's no happy ending right um he has his moment of panic and he's actually about to shoot himself right um when he he finds his salvation he's got all these books that he can read he can just like live out the rest of his life reading and he'll be content uh but then he can't read anymore Mm-mm. yeah um which i think uh you know the the aspect of dependence on technology uh, is something that Rod Serling likes to explore. Uh, the threat of technology in the form of, uh, you know, uh, massively destructive bombs, uh, which was just kind of looming over everybody's head at the time. That's something that he loves to explore. And both of those themes are present uh, at, uh, very heavily in this episode, right. along with loneliness and fear uh, and isolation. Right. And the difference between uh, isolation and solitude and loneliness. Right. That's always a really interesting, uh, look for me is like the difference between isolation and loneliness or aloneness and loneliness. Like you can be Mm -hmm. alone. Like our character was fine. I think at one point he even says like, that's fine. Like I have plenty to keep myself busy. Um, so he wasn't afraid of being alone. He was afraid of loneliness. Mm -hmm. He got, he drew, um, and I don't want to say entertainment, but I don't really know what to, how to describe it. He, he drew companionship, I guess, from books. Um, and so when he didn't have that companionship, which is what was really the biggest thing that he needed, which again, going back to our first episode, the Colonel said we can do everything but companionship. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. Maybe they should have put books in the uh, thing with uh, our main character from the last episode. Well, I, I think I think they might actually have uh, alluded to that, you know, because um, as you pointed out in our, our previous discussion, um, there's a scientist who's talking to uh, the uh, future astronaut in, in Where Is Everybody saying, you know, um, we can give you microfilm. You know, mm-hmm. we can give you things to read on microfilm. But I guess, you know, for what was his name, Mike? Mike Ferris? Yeah, I think so. Sound right? right. Uh, for him, that wasn't enough. But for Henry Bemis, that would have been yes. plenty. And I would, uh, I would venture to say for many, many a librarian folk would also be more than enough. Absolutely. And, you know, how much of this guy's life would have been uh, better if he had just worked someplace else? <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know? 
I made a note in my, I jotted down in my notes that uh, as a librarian, the first few minutes of this episode were so hard to watch. Right. I was like, oh my God, when that woman, when his wife drew, so she drew in his book. So he tried, they were going to go, um, they were going to go to a friend's other couple's house to play cards and you could tell this guy was like I don't want to go and I was like neither Henry I don't want to go either but um the Joneses yeah so he's going to the Joneses and he hides he gets underneath his cushion of his chair and he's hidden a book under there a a a book of poems and I was thinking he's a man after my own heart Uh um and he hides it in his jacket pocket and his wife somehow knows she's like creepily right behind the door and she's like what do you got there and he's like what nothing and he uh finds this, <laughs> finds this book of poems like she's the worst and she has drawn marked out all of the pages so that he can't read them and i wrote in my notes she is a monster we don't do that helen we don't do that <laughs> Don't do that. I was appalled. Not only only does she um, mark through all the pages, she then proceeds to um, rip all the pages out and throw them (sighs) on the floor. Um, And that's the moment where, uh, maybe because I've seen the episode before, I cringed because his glasses fall off. Yes. When he rushes down to the floor to pick up all those pages, uh his glasses fall off and of course i mean it's the carpeted floor so his glasses don't break but i feel like that's a moment where you're kind of being given what's gonna happen some foreshadowing right Mm -hmm. um and then there's there's another moment later on when he's in the bank vault and the explosion happens his glasses are about they're about to fall off his face they're like down around his chin um dude come on on. just hold on to him (laughs) you know and in the in the short story it actually, uh, it, it makes a point of saying, you know, his, his glasses are slipping a little bit mm. before there's any kind of trouble or anything like, you know, um, before the big, you know, ironic ending. Right. He, you know, he's been meaning to get them tightened because they slipped down his nose a little. And, um, and of course, that's the, the ultimate his know, terrible thing. That, yeah, it's, it's his undoing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it it didn't really, I think maybe those two shots were, um, a way of inserting that information in just kind of subliminally a little bit. Um, they're hinting at these, these glasses are not secure on his face. be a problem later on. I wonder, you know, I'm, I wear my glasses not as often. I wear glasses sometimes, um, but I wear contacts a lot of times. I wonder if the people who wear glasses you know, people who wear glasses every day, if they noticed that more, because that didn't, when the first couple of times I watched the episode, just like casually, you know, we always watched Twilight Zone on New Year's and that was like a family tradition of ours. And so this episode obviously came on a lot. lot. It's one of the most popular, most well-known episodes of the series. Um, Mm -hmm. I never noticed that before. And, uh, you know, when researching this episode, it did, you know, come up and I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. But I wonder if the people who wear glasses all the time were like, ah, like, because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it didn't occur to me that I would, I, you know. Yeah, because that's not going to happen with your, with your contacts. Right. And I mean, um, I don't wear glasses that often. And if you don't have a backup pair. 
Right. Which also is pointed out in the short story. He's been meaning to get a backup pair. Oh no, they were really like letting you know, like <laughs> this is this is the end. This is it um, for him. Uh, there's no there's no backup. But um, okay, so I don't even know where we were. <laughs> where we were before we talking about the glasses. We finished the um, the the summary. Sure. So, um, yeah, so we were talking about the the glasses falling. That foreshadowing. Okay. But um, but you really you you get the sense that um, in his world he's really out of place. Yeah. And um, he lives in a community. At least maybe it's not. Maybe it's something that um, was present more broadly at the time. But um, there's definitely an anti-intellectual sentiment in yeah. the people that are in his immediate life. I definitely got that impression, especially from his wife. She says things like, you know, she said at one point, um, he said, why, Helen, why do you do the things you do? Or why do you do these things? And she said, because I married a fool. And I thought, lady, your husband is so intelligent. Like, how can you be, he literally reads all the time. Like, how could you think that he's, it's such a weird thing for her to say. Yeah. And, and when she like tricks him with the, the poetry book, you know, um, he doesn't know yet that she's marked through all the pages. She says like, hey, will you read me some poetry? I, I hate because that. she's just, an, she's, she's just so evil. Um, you know, he actually gets excited. Like this is a dude who wants to sit on the couch and read you poetry instead of going over to see the Joneses. What? Um, and she, she can't stand it. I know. She just wants to, well, maybe, maybe I'm, I don't know if the um, if the Twilight Zone episode does this, but in the story, she just wants to watch television. Ugh. That's her thing. But may maybe Rod Serling was reluctant to criticize television That's as an true. entertainment <laughs> form. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely, I think I would have to say that my least favorite character was the wife, even over the boss. Cause I was like, you know, the boss is a jerk, but he's your boss. But like, this is your like person you live with all the time. I couldn't believe that she was being the way that she was being. I thought she was the worst. Poor guy. I just wanted to read poetry. Oh, well, um, but yeah, so he's, he's, um, he's very alone to begin with just right. in his life because, uh, because he wants to read Nobody else really values the written word the way that he does uh, in his immediate life. So he's in the wrong uh, line of work. Uh, he probably married the wrong person. <laughs> but then, you know, you can, you can say maybe she feels the way she feels because she feels uh, she's, from her point of view, maybe she's neglected. I mean, I would think so if he hadn't been like, oh, you want me to read you poetry? Yeah, have a seat. There's all kinds of lovely things in here. Let's let's sit on the couch together and read this. I just don't sure. believe that. I think she was just meant to be a very uh, shallow, materialistic kind of person. She's dressed really beautifully. If you notice, she's wearing this really great, pretty dress. Um, her hair is really nice. Um, she looks really nice. Like, you know, she looks very fashionable and stuff like that. So you could surmise from that, that she's concerned with the way that she looks. And if you look at Henry, he's obviously not very concerned. I think at one point she tells him to change his shirt and I just, and he doesn't, he just gets a tie. Yeah. <laughs> 
I just love him. I, I love this character from the very first. Like when I saw him reading the book under his desk, I was like, that was me all the way through school. Like I, you yeah. know, um, so I, I love him from the very beginning and I felt bad for him the whole episode. Yeah. And I mean, while the, the, the story is, it's not kind to people who don't read. Yeah. Um, it kind of paints them in, in an unkind light. Um, I, I don't feel like it's really all that kind to Henry either. I mean, like you're supposed to like him, you're supposed to identify with him. Um, but he's also like, he's very, um, he's very timid. Yeah. Um, and he, he doesn't come across as particularly bright. Mm -mm. No, he, uh, he doesn't. And he, I guess timid, you're right, is the best word for him because he seems very unsure of himself and even his own like feelings and emotions. Um, and that kind of goes to him going through these, like, like at the, after the bomb has gone off, when he's made his way out of the bank, he, um, is kind of like at war with himself a little bit. He's like trying to contain this like fear and panic that he's having. So he's like, no, no, no. Like I'm, you know, this is fine. I have plenty of, you know, plenty to fill my time. But then in like a few minutes, he takes a few steps and he's like, ah, like somebody help me. You know what I mean? And um, it seems like he's, you know, not just timid, but just not sure of himself, you know, and his own feelings and things like that in a weird way. And even like when, you know, she's easily able to trick him back at the house when she's like, do you want to read me this poetry? So in a way, I think he's intelligent, like book smart, but he's not very um, common sense smart, if that makes sense. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. Right. Um, which I think a lot of um, <laughs> uh, that might be you know, something that a lot of anti-intellectuals would point to as, you know, you're like, well, you know, yeah, you, you got them book smarts, but yeah. <laughs> can you, yeah, I don't know, can you, you know, like do whatever. Hey, your own hook. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, can you, can you change your oil in your car? Build a house. Change up. Well, hey, yeah. Um, yeah. Change tire. Read enough books, you can. Yeah, that's right. As, as the son of a single mother. <laughs> Who learned how to change a tire from Yahoo because that's how old I am. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> if you're a reader, if you know how to find information, it's out there. You don't have to, you don't have to necessarily, you know, have the common sense or the, you know, the street smarts or whatever, you know, you can, you can find that stuff in the written word. Okay. Um, <laughs> and as for American folk, I would expect nothing less from us. <laughs> <laughs> the seeds were planted early for me. Yeah. Um, well, I, I do have a couple of like favorite quotes. So um, since we were talking about him um, still outside the after the bomb had gone off and everything, he says this really hilarious thing that I loved so much that he said because I related to it so much. He says, the worst part, the very worst part is being alone. Is this how it's going to be sitting around day after day eating? And I was like, same. <laughs> well, <Me too." laughs> When all you've got is like crackers and green beans, then yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be terrible. But, you know, I mean, we've all got our sourdough starters and our bone broth or whatever, right. you know. Uh, it's not so bad uh, these days, but. Um, I just thought that was so funny, sitting around <laughs> eating. And I was just like, how does he know what I'm doing? My <laughs> <laughs> That's all there is to do. Right, exactly. Um, um, that's so funny. I, I have one more, another funny interesting quote that he says around that yeah you do time. that 
He says, no. uh, if it weren't for the loneliness, if it weren't for the sameness, if it were, if there was just something to do, and that's when he's co contemplating suicide, um, around the time that he's contemplating suicide, he's saying, and I thought it was interesting. He says the loneliness, but then he adds the sameness to that. And I thought that was a really interesting word to use. So that's the key. That's the difference because um, he is essentially alone before the bomb. Right. Just in his life, uh, there are people who are physically present, but he is, he is alone. Mm -hmm. And then after the bomb, the people are no longer physically present. He's still alone, but it's the monotony. Yeah. That's, that's the difference for him. I can completely relate and being in our situation that we're in now, mm -hmm. uh, being, you know, at home and doing things like that, it can get very monotonous. And when he finds the library and he sees the books, mm -hmm. um, that changes for him. You know, the outlook for him is no longer sameness. Right. Day after day. He has, yeah, he has those books that he only, it, it, all he wanted was time to read those books, people to leave him alone. Right. Now there's no more people to bug him and stop him from reading. He has the books. He has his food. He's fine. He can read. And that's, that's why he stops, you know, thinking about killing himself. He becomes very content. Right. Poor Henry. Yeah. <laughs> poor Henry. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's basically, that's the whole idea of the, of the show is poor Henry. But I, Something that struck me, seeing everything else destroyed, mm -hmm. the bank is destroyed, um, you know, there's like, there's a car that won't start, um, you know, everything is in ruins, but the books are there. Right. And, um, you know, there's, there's not a ripped page anywhere. <laughs> They're all in perfect condition, um, which I think is, it's convenient for the, the purposes of the story. Right. But also, I think that we can we can look at that and, and we can say, like, look, you know, there are a lot of people right now who might be having a difficult time because they're finding out how little they actually matter in the big scheme of things. Um, there are some people who are considered essential and they are not the bankers. They're not the CEOs. No, nope. they're the workers. That's right. They're the people who get paid the, the least and get respected the least. Yep. And there you go. There's Harold, there's Henry Bemis, you know, no respect, right? No respect. Yeah. And he's left and the books are left. All the rest of the world that didn't respect him, didn't respect the books. It's all gone, but he's there wow. and the books are there. That's so interesting. That's a um, parallel. And I think that um, Ron Serling probably I at least hope that he was thinking on some level uh, about um, maybe that being a symbol of like the persistence of art and literature in particular, because obviously he's a fan of literature because he wouldn't bring up Charles Dickens all the time yeah. or Shakespeare, you know, like, I mean, he's, he's, he, he's always making these references to classical uh, literature and it's all, I mean, it's, it's Western literature because that's what he knows, but you know, he, he definitely has like a very deep love and respect for um, classical literature. And um, I just had a thought and I, oh, he, he always, you're always able to trace his inspiration. I mean, in, even in the last two episodes, you've been able to trace his inspiration or possible sources of inspiration to literature, to some kind mm -hmm. of like short story or book or something like that. 
and and they're not his stories. You know, he might have adapted them for television, but there were other people's stories. Right. And so um, not only does he have a love and respect for classic literature, but he knows what's going on in his own time. You know, he's keeping up with like the and and I dare say that science fiction had not been um, uh, explored quite as thoroughly as it has by now. At the in time, his time, definitely. you yeah. know, there were there were definitely, you know, frontiers that were being explored, you know, with science fiction. And there were ideas that were being discussed through science fiction as a medium that couldn't be discussed in other ways, um, which is part of the brilliance of the Twilight Zone. But um, but he definitely had his finger on the pulse of of the contemporary um, speculative fiction of the time, which is why he brought in all these um, these writers that uh, were writing poignant stories right. in that genre. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, we've talked before about what a great storyteller and um, you know imaginative mind uh, Rod Serling is. He does such a great job of just um, like I've said before, you know, he just does such a great job of anticipating what his audience is going to be thinking or feeling uh -huh. when he brings these ideas out. And especially back then, I really wish that there was a way that you could experience his work and his his particular style in the mindset that his viewers would have had in the 50s. Um, because it right. would have been a crazy, I mean, even now we watch things, we watch, you know, these classic episodes and we're like, mind blown you know what i mean but can you imagine being in 1959 and the idea that a bomb was going to come down and a guy could survive in a bank vault and then like this crazy twist of fate situation i mean it really would have been incredible to experience like at the time do you think we get that um with things like um is it black mirror maybe or yeah. jordan peele's reboot of the twilight zone i have not watched the jordan peele reboot okay. i i need to do some looking into that maybe one day we'll do a podcast about that uh series that'd be awesome um one of my favorite directors and creators is david lynch so i don't know if you're Whoa. familiar with david lynch but he is a surrealist uh artist who he does all kinds of stuff, but he is also one of those people that like does things and he does not care if you understand. Um, he does not offer right. any explanation <laughs> is what it is. And you can just be mad about it. <laughs> and I often am. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I think there are artists out there who are ahead of their time, similarly to how Rod Sterling is. Um, I feel like black mirror, uh, does a, is a great show and does a great job of of trying to break that threshold um i also feel like a lot of the people in this generation you know just this generation as a whole um speaking for millennials i'm not really sure about gen z um but millennials which i'm a part of it's kind of hard to impress us um we've kind of like lived through it all and like saw a bunch of stuff <laughs> right yeah so it's kind of hard to blow our minds, um, but it happens. And I think it happens with artists like David Lynch and, you know, um, possibly with the, with the um, new Twilight Zone would possibly do that. I'd have to watch it to be sure. But there are things out there, I think, that come close to doing something similar to what Rod Serling was doing in the 50s. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, so I guess it's it's not that hard to imagine being a person who consumes stories that really play on um, contemporary um, anxieties mm -hmm. and things that we are um, familiar with and we're always thinking about and maybe even um, twisting them a little bit to examine um, the pros and cons of certain technologies. Uh, I know um, Black Mirror does a lot of um, uh, examination of things like privacy um, <laughs> and morality of, of different technologies. Um, and that was something that Rod, Rod Serling was, was concerned about, the morality of, of certain technologies. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, it would be uh, lovely to be able to watch The Twilight Zone from the point of view of a person who has the same context, same frame of reference as Rod Serling, you know, um, being able to um, view it through the lens of its own time and its own context. Uh, but I mean, we just kind of have to imagine based on our own experiences of, of stories like that now. Yeah, and I think there definitely is something to be said about uh, this, you know, the series has made its way and survived through the decades and it has hit every decade differently. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like people in the 70s saw these same episodes and watched these same things and probably watched the same marathons that I watched on New Year's Day and they got- It's not on the sci-fi channel. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how they watched it. Maybe they did. I don't know. But, you know, they got something different than what I got out of it. And they got something different than what the people in the 50s got out of it. And so I think that that in itself is like, maybe we were all meant to get something different out of it. Maybe it was, it meant something different to all of us at the time that we saw it. And even now as we're like analyzing it, you know, this is just another, another group of people seeing the same information and interpreting it in their own time. And I think that's really powerful and really important um, for like every form of, um, you know, part of the arts and entertainment and things like that. Um, that's important. It, it will live on and people will take different things from it each time. And that's, that's one of the strengths of speculative, speculative fiction. And, you know, you and I were interested in, in re-examining these episodes in, in our own modern context. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right. That is something that um, it all really, whether we're talking about the bomb or we're talking about the Rona, you know, it's, um, it's all, it all boils down to the same stuff. Yeah. It's all uh, fear and, yeah, isolation versus um, the embracing of community and society um, and peace. It's, it's, uh, it always boils down to um, paranoia and uh, are we gonna give in to uh, our, our base you know, fears and, um, and our, our vices and our, and our negative tendencies or are we going to embrace um, the, the higher aspects of what it means to be a human? Mm -hmm. And change. Um, and I, I cannot wait. Someday we're going to get to discuss um, the monsters are due on Maple Street. Yes. Um, you know, so uh, I, I can't wait to do that one. I think that one will be especially relevant to. Um, it all boils down to the same stuff. We're always dealing with the same the same basic issues, um, no matter what the 
the catalysts are for those issues, you know, it all it all comes down to those same things. And so um, it's it's going to be relevant for every age and um, and every audience who takes the time to look at it. Right. And I think that um, that's what makes great literature. That's what makes great entertainment. That's what makes great um, plays and theater like it's so interesting, you know, I really liked how you put it, that it all boils down to the same things because um, watching individuals, talented individuals like Rod Serling and even the actors in the show and the people who put their own spins on things, um, it's interesting watching these same themes be reimagined in all kinds of different ways. That's really, that's really a fascinating, you could almost do a podcast just on that. Maybe, but, somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have some other fun facts. I'm really big on like trivia facts and things like that about stuff like this. Um, and so I have some other interesting things like this was, this episode was rated number 25 on TV guides, most um, memorable moments on television. Oh, remember TV guide? Yeah, barely. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> a little. I remember when it was, it was little. Like, it was like a newsprint kind of thing, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was very confusing to my very young self to try to be like, um, and this is also Rod Serling, Sterling's, I think I've been missing. Serling. Is it Serling? Yes. Okay, good. I've been pronouncing it correctly the whole time. Awesome. You're good. Well, it is his, um, is rumored to be his personal favorite episode. Yeah, I I think I, um, I heard a clip of an interview where he said it was, um, uh, it was definitely one of his favorites. He cited this one and, and another one. Um, and I guess maybe it's because he has um, such a love of literature and, you know, he is a reader um, of both classic and contemporary literature. Um, and then also I thought it was really interesting that this is only, this is one of only four times that he used um, mid episode narration. So I was like, I didn't even realize that that, you know what I mean? So that's really cool. It kind of makes this episode special in a way that mm-hmm. there's only four episodes that he did where he narrated in the middle of the episode. So I thought that was interesting. Um, especially because this episode, when I first watched it and when we discussed talking about it, I remembered it being what I thought was a fairly simple episode. I thought it was pretty like this guy, you know, it was just easy to follow. And I remembered a lot about it. And so I think I actually mentioned to you um, in the lead up to recording this that like it, I learned so much about this episode um, yeah. looking at it analytically. Which is, yeah, that's something that I had not done, even though I've, I've watched um, so many of those episodes for, for entertainment, you know, over the years, you yeah, haven't really um, thought about them or discussed them with many people. So uh, it's a cool opportunity. And one of the things that you brought up that I had never even, um, I, I, I just didn't notice um, was the the recurring theme of of clocks and time, and yeah. doesn't he use like so the 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 mid episode narration mm-hmm. is uh, is unique in this episode because it only shows up he said four times in the entire yeah. series. Um, what does he use that mid episode narration to say? It's a great question. <laughs> um, because I, I, I if I remember correctly, he. Talks about, he mentions specifically time. Let me see. And I believe he also talks about it in the opening narration. Yes, in the opening narration, he says that, um, let's see. 
Not unconscious. Oh, wait, I'm so sorry. I'm looking at the wrong thing. That's okay. He says, uh, Mr. Bemis will enter a world without bank presidents or wives or clocks or anything else. He'll have the world all to himself without anyone at all. And I'm not seeing the... And it says, yeah, um, a bookish little man who, whose passion is the printed page, but who is conspired against by a bank president and a wife and the world full of tongue cluckers and the unrelenting hands of a clock. And then the middle narration... Oh, I see it now, yes. ...starts out seconds, minutes, hours. They crawl uh, by on hands and knees for Mr. Henry Bemis. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. That's a really like pointed like uh, they crawl by on hands and knees. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a very descriptive uh, statement right there. An eight-hour tour of a graveyard. Ooh, so time right. again is a big theme right here in this. So episode. it's 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 in the title, and then yeah, he he actually um, um, breaks with his normal format to do that middle narration to point out time. Uh, not just once, but twice at the very beginning of it and the end of that middle narration. He, he's talking about time, um, which, which is important mm -hmm. in this episode as it is in the last episode because, um, because he only has so much time because there's, there's radiation everywhere. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's meaningless. Exactly. Um, because there's so much of it. And uh, like, depending on how much you zoom in or zoom out, it's either really, really relevant or has no relevance at all. Um, I also find it interesting that it was relevant. He's talking when he's talking about the books and he's lining, he's like stacking them up and he's planning his whole year. And then he talks mm -hmm. about the next year and he's like, he's planning the year and he's saying the months. And then when he gets to the end, he's like, and then I'll plan for next year. And so right. to him, time is still important as long as it's full as long as he has stuff to fill it with, um, you know, but then whenever his glasses break, it just loses, he's just lost. I mean, he's right. crazy. That's so interesting. And I love the, um, the particular moments where you're, he's using that clock imagery where he's like, when he um, falls in the vault, whenever the bomb hits, you see his stop or his, not a stopwatch, but his pocket watch fall out of his pocket. And then, um, you know, at the end, whenever he's sitting there and he's like, there was time, finally there was time. And he's sitting at a giant clock. Yeah. yeah. And, and what an interesting moment for the, the pocket watch to come out of his pocket. The moment when he suddenly does have enough time. That is interesting. I think it breaks even. I'm not does sure. It? I think it breaks. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting. Very interesting. All around a very interesting episode. And I think that as, as library workers, we have um, an opportunity, maybe not, maybe not in this podcast because it's not strictly uh, relevant, but um, to discuss his glasses as, um, as access. I was also thinking about access to information during this episode. Um, We've discussed that before and how not having access to information in a, um, in any situation, but definitely the situation that we're in right now mm -hmm. with fear and anxiety and things like that present, not having access to information is a huge um, problem. And it adds to that fear and that 
um, anxiety and um, confusion and all of those really bad feelings that you don't want to have not having access yeah. to information does that. And so when he, uh, you know, they, I think there definitely is something to be said about him losing his glasses and therefore losing his access to information. Yeah. And um, I guess you can look at it. You can look at it a couple of ways. Like um, the glasses are like, a, they're like his, his privilege. And once they're taken away, he goes from a situation where he's, he's practically in luxury Right. Uh, by his standards, um, to being uh, in a situation that entirely revolves around survival. But then at the same time, you could also look at it as like he is, um, uh, I think I read somewhere maybe that someone said he is farsighted. I don't know. It's really big glasses. That's all I know. Sure. Well, okay. So, so he obviously has, um, he, that, that you could look at it as a, um, a disability. Mm-hmm. And those those glasses are his access, right? Um, and then when he loses that access, he no longer has the information. Um, like he loses what links him to his will to live, right? Um, like his world just has no meaning anymore, right? Uh, which is something that we're concerned about as as librarians and library workers, and, absolutely, and other folks. But um, so when he when he loses that, it's just this uh, just this big sad moment. Even though I feel like it it could be a really darkly funny moment, but it's not. I feel like the reason that it's not funny is because you like this character by now. Um, by that point in the episode, I mean, you like him. I liked him at the very beginning. I liked him. I I really liked that character, but I, to me, the reason that I like my first instinct wasn't to laugh at it, which I mean, let's face it. It is, it's irony. So it's hilarious. It just is funny. But the reason you don't laugh at it is because you're like this poor guy, you know, like you, you like him. So you don't want to laugh at it, but, um, yeah, it is. I, you know, I think it is like dark irony, bad, just stinks for him yeah and you know i i know that um the the story had already been written you know when when they just adapted it um but um that it could have ended with him sitting on the steps of the library surrounded in his books you know content that now he had you know, he had time enough at last but right. then i guess there was the it was necessary to stay true to the original story um, and end with that ironic note. Um, oh, oh, well. Yeah. Sorry, Henry. What lesson do you think that we're supposed to like, What if there is a lesson, what lesson do you think Rod Serling and the, and the person who wrote the original short story is trying to teach us not to depend on something or... Um, Her name... Like Lynn, Lynn Venable. Huh. Yeah. Um, so, hey, you know, like a, a woman in the 50s writing science fiction. That is rare. <laughs> yeah. And not using a man's name. That's amazing. Um, okay, so what's, uh, I think maybe um, dependence on technology. Yeah, I was one. Yeah. Because, you know, even though we have the, um, 
the sympathetic nature of uh, a man who can't read without his glasses because um, because his eyes don't um, uh, don't work properly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's a, that's a sympathetic situation. Right. He is dependent on the technology of of reading glasses, right? Um, and obviously, you've got this other technology that's very destructive, um, juxtaposed with you know this this uh, the the technology of his glasses, which is you know provides access, which is non destructive, um, but he's still dependent on it, and it creates a situation where, um, and I don't know what is he supposed to do? Like he he can't see, right? You know, so he has to be dependent on that. Right. Um, unless, you know, maybe large print. Right. If it, we were, if it were a decent library, it would have had large print. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or like, you know, a magnifying glass somewhere, you know, ask if right. they ask. There's probably one in a drawer somewhere. I'm sure. <laughs> somewhere. Somebody has one. Um, I think, yeah, uh, dependence on technology, um, the destructive nature of, of um, unchecked technology is, is one. And, uh, you know, there's, there's one episode um, of The Twilight Zone that I think they included in the, the movie that they made in the 80s, yeah. where they just remade a bunch of episodes into little vignettes. And um, one of them, is, it's about a, a town that's terrorized by this uh, kid uh, who um, has uh, uh, all these telekinetic powers. It's, very kind of, it's almost like Stephen King kind of stuff, Something about uh, that kind of territory. Yeah, it's something about, that's the title of the episode, something, it's like paradise, something, something. Something along those lines, yeah. Um, but that story specifically isn't supposed to have a point. It's just supposed to be like, just like here's wow, this kid, this kid is a little terror, you know, and yeah. that's it. That's the point. Um, so maybe, I mean, maybe the point in, in some sense is the, is the irony of, um, you know, this is all this guy ever wanted, and now he can't have it. Right, and I think ten thousand spoons. Yeah, I think there's, <laughs> there's definitely. You know, I I mentioned David Lynch, so like I can get on board um, with just here's some information that you don't know what to do with. It's just there, you know. Um, yeah, and it's just gonna haunt you. <laughs> yeah, you know this now, and you don't know why you know it, but you just do. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you just say thank you for the creative uh, experience that you went on, and then you just tip your hat to them, and you just go on with your life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think that I mean, but I think it still holds value, even if there isn't a lesson to be learned. I think that it's still valuable. It's still just for the pure fact that we can sit here and and um, go over it the way that we are. Is it's cool. It's a really interesting piece of uh, television. Yeah. Sure. So one final like closing thought. Mm -hmm. We talked about um, this episode and and the correlations uh, in between this one and and the previous episode that we discussed. Where is everybody? Right. We see what happens with the potential astronaut in Where Is Everybody. You know, he he gets brought out of his box in his moment moment of panic. He's going to go to the moon. Um, he's going to be he, not alone, but Hopefully, sort of, but eventually he won't prepared. be prepared. Right. Um, we don't see what happens to Harold or to Henry Bemis. Right. I keep saying Harold Bemis in my head, but it's Henry Bemis. <laughs> okay. What happens to him? Like, do you think he has the kind of breakdown eventually that, that 
Mike Ferris has, or are we even supposed to consider that? Is it just like it ends with the irony of him breaking his glasses and he's just, he's just screwed big time? You know, I don't know. I, um, you know, I'm always the one to, to go on the positive, um, try to think positively as much as I can. And, um, you know, I remember just today when I was watching, rewatching the episode to just prepare for this, you know, discussion. And, um, I was thinking when he got in the car, I was thinking like, yes, Henry, like try to, you know, do what you can, like try to get out of there, you know? Right. So I want to hope that he found, you know, maybe there's other survivors or maybe he found his way out of there. Um, but it makes more sense to me to think, almost think of him as like a, I don't know. It, it, it almost comes across to me as like a um, cautionary tale. Mm. I think of him almost as like a non-existent, like, I don't know. Like, I just think of him as being like, almost like a fairy tale. Like someone's telling you this like story and you're thinking, you know, don't be like Henry Bemis, tighten your glasses. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I I just like, I don't know. Like he just, he doesn't even, as much as I liked this character, when I think about the whole story as a whole, I think of it almost as intangible as like, because there wasn't an ending, not like, you know, in the first episode we discussed, there is this ending, there's this closure, you know, that he's there talking about all these things they can do for him. You know, you're going to go to the moon. We're going to give you microfilm and food and all this stuff. And you're going to be fine. And it was really easy for me to believe that like, he's going to go on and be better prepared and be okay. And so Mm -hmm. really difficult to do when there's no, closure it's just like that's it it really feels like like almost like a cautionary tale to me yeah and it's it's overwhelming the the scale of it because yeah he doesn't know um if it was just his city or if it was um the entire nation or the the whole world right um because you know that was one of the the big um fears of the time was the the world being destroyed the entire world literally being destroyed. Right. Like we had that capability. We still do. Right. Um, but cooler heads have prevailed, I guess, more times than not, uh, yeah. you know, on, on our longer timeline. <laughs> yeah. Um, <So> far. <laughs> no, we're not, we're not as uh, constantly in fear of that the way they might've been at the time, but, um, different, that's for sure. Yeah. And so it's, it's overwhelming. Just, um, you know, you, you look off off into the distance and you don't see anything. It's just, you know, um, rubble and clouds. Um, and he's in a situation where he cannot see, you know, it's just one big blurry mess. You know, he may not even be able to find his way back to the the ruins of the grocery store to eat his green beans. Mm. Um, he may not even be able to find his way back to the gun. Right. Um, it's just one big overwhelming mess. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's maybe you're not supposed to, um, dwell on that too hard because it's just so overwhelming. It's such, um, so big in scope, just the, the size of that disaster. Um, which, <laughs> Hey, there's the modern relevance again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, and when you mentioned, you know, talking about the time period, it, it makes me feel even more that it's meant to be look at, look at, um, what could happen, you know, a very confronting, uh, experience kind of, especially if you're really trying to look at it through the lens of 1950s, you're, it is a very confronting, like this could be you, you, you know, you don't want to be this guy. 
you don't want to be this guy that's left alone because I, I'm thinking now, like, doesn't everyone have something that they depend on to live? You know what I mean? And not just like food or, you know, those basics like food and water. I'm talking about like an aspect of your life or who you are, like Henry Bemis, it was his glasses or another person. It might be, I don't know. It's hard for me to think of an exact example, but do you kind of get what I'm saying? Like everyone could put their, put themselves in his shoes that's sitting in, you know, their living room watching this thinking that's a nightmare. I don't want to be, you know, in that situation. Well, and I mean, okay. So um, I'm a creative person. I love to paint. You know, I, uh, I, I went to, to art school, um, not library school, <laughs> but um, and, and when this, when this began, when we, you know, decided to, to close all the libraries to the public and we were all going to work from home, I thought, you know what? I've got time. I can paint now, you know, like, and I have, I have not picked up a paintbrush once. Writing. Yes. For me, I was like, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to really write. I'm going to put everything I've written together and like really get it taken care of. And I've not done it. Right. There's a lesson there. So yeah, we have time enough at last, but um, our, our glasses are our own in action. That's a really good, that's a, that's very uh, thoughtful. Yeah, yeah. In the face of an existential threat to the species, yeah, our you know trivial pursuits are not being pursued. Nope, nope, no. Thing. <laughs> um. So, do you want to talk about the next episode that we'll discuss? Um. Yeah. I mean, I can let them know. I can talk about the title, but um, you actually pitched this. Uh, episode. It's called The Obsolete Man. The Obsolete Man. Um, yeah, I chose this one. Um, it's about uh, a librarian who is um, about to be uh, executed by uh, a totalitarian state um, for the crime of being obsolete. Uh, and, you know, um, that's something that I don't think we're ever going to not face. You know, people right. thinking that libraries are obsolete because of Google. Uh, or, you know, whatever, yeah. <laughs> uh, just whatever it is, you know, oh, you know, right. uh, we don't need the internet anymore, or we don't need uh, libraries anymore because we have the internet. But, uh, again, you know, access and, you know, other, other reasons why libraries are relevant, but I think it'll be a fun discussion, um, you know, uh, and anytime you can talk about um, librarians uh, sticking it to fascists, I'm down. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for watching. Yes, thank you. We will see you again next week. Yeah.